Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mike Porras. When Tim Fung wanted to be one of the first people to get his hands on the latest Apple iPad, he offered to pay a guy a thousand bucks to stand in line for him on City's George Street. The guy who said yes was a truck driver who became redundant the week before. Sure, it was a publicity stunt, but Tim created a job for this guy that had never existed before and would be the beginning of what would now be known as Airtasker. Tim Fung is CEO and one of the co-founders of Airtasker, a marketplace enabling users to outsource everyday tasks. Tim and his co-founder, Jonathan Liu, launched Airtasker back in 2012. And that was around the same time consumers were introduced to other marketplace companies such as Uber. Fast forward to this year, it has become a listed company on the ASX. Tim and I are going to discuss things to consider when pitching your idea correctly to your audience and why storytelling can be the difference in closing a deal, how to develop a marketplace business, and balancing the buyers and sellers that use your marketplace. So let's get into it. Tim Fung, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, I've used Airtasker. Uh, I know a couple of my sons have used Airtasker. Um, things like for moving furniture and stuff like that, uh, particularly when it comes to getting stuff up and down stairs where my boys live in apartments. So um, you're one of the co-founders of um, Airtasker, but I want to sort of wind it back a little bit. I want to talk about Tim Fung. Let's say uh, you grew up in St. Ives, I think. Is that right, St. Ives? That's right. Very fortunate to be, you know, born on the north shore of Sydney and um, in the quiet suburb of St. Ives Chase. Your dad was from Hong Kong, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, So he came to Australia when he was uh, fairly young, about um, 15 years old. So I went to school here and um, my mum is... um, is third generation Australian Chinese. So I think her family's been here since the, you know, 1800s. So uh, um, pretty long history in Australia. Totally. Um, yeah. That's about as Aussie as. And where'd you go to school up there, mate? <laughs> I went to uh, St. Ives North, just to the, the public school. And then um, and then I went to Artarman, um Public School a bit later on. Artarman. Well, that's a long way from St. Ives, though. That's right. So as a, you know, a 10-year-old jumping on the... Um, 
on the on the train up the up the North Shore, but at the um, opportunity class at Ataman. Um, and so both my sisters went there. I went there as well. And, and what did your dad do? My dad was an accountant, but he um, he was also um, you know a small business entrepreneur. He and a few of his mates had restaurants. Uh, one of them was uh, a restaurant that was famous in the 90s called Jojo's Harborside, which I think got replaced with Jordan Seafood, but oh, uh, yeah. the original was um, my uncle Joe's Seafood Restaurant. So, um, yeah, a few small businesses too. And both your parents worked? Did mum work as well? Yeah, she was a secretary and, again, always in small businesses, you know, working for, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, small small businesses where it would be a handful of people. I had an office and so she was a bit of a jack of all trades. Do you think um, you are the typical son of a Chinese immigrant on your dad's side and um, and having that uh, Chinese cultural beat, you know, like many, many generations back and on your mum's side, mm. do you think you have that sort of cultural bent towards being an entrepreneur or do you think it's given your Chinese background? I mean, people say it about Jewish people, people say it about Greek people like me. Um, do, do you mm. think you have that uh, – DNA or or you will socialise that way or do you think it's just a question of sort of both your parents working hard and you just decide to get into it? Where do you think it sits? Well, it's really interesting because I do think that, you know, my dad was always talking about business and entrepreneurship, you know, not in so many words when we were young, but he would talk about, you know, building your reputation and, you know, making sure that uh, you're dealing with people in a way that is good for them and also good for you which is essentially, you know, business talk. So I think um, it was definitely part of, you know, instilled into me growing up. I went to a public school. I went to um, North Sydney Boys uh, in high school. There were a lot of people from different backgrounds there, a lot of people who were, you know, children of immigrants. Um, And I would say that, you know, given that my parents came to, my father came to Australia when he was very young and my mum was a little bit more established in Australia, maybe my, like, culture and attitudes are slightly different because... I found that, you know, a lot of the people who were children of more recent immigrants were much more risk averse and, you know, aiming to become doctors or, you know, like they, they aspired to much more like salary jobs and that's what their parents uh, wanted them to do. And so I feel really fortunate to have been, you know, brought up on the North Shore and to be able to take a few more risks and have that opportunity, probably because I had a bit of a, you know, something to fall back on. Whereas I think, you know, if your parents were, uh, recent immigrants, um, maybe you didn't have that sort of privilege and, and luxury. So pretty thankful for that. That's a good analysis, actually, because uh, my father was, I'm a first generation of an immigrant and, um, or immigrants. And uh, you're right, we didn't have much, we had nothing to fall back on. So they made us, myself and brothers, just all go into professions. And we'll, you know, the, the deal was you had to study hard, you had to go to university, you had to get a degree, you had to get a profession. It was not a compulsory thing, but it was like, you know, driving towards that the whole time. And it is quite conservative. It's a conservative way of doing things. But equally, I had to, I saw my dad uh, always having a crack, trying to do other things other than being a factory worker, trying to get forward because he was uneducated. So, you know, he couldn't really go into a profession, never went to school. So uh, I guess, yeah, that's, that's, but your analysis is quite a good one. Um, I never thought of that way because people look at like, you know, boys and girls of Chinese descent who get into, a selective school by the sound of it in North Sydney as being kids that are driven to study, they have access to tutors, blah, 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 you know, like, I mean, it was, it was, that was my generation. My, your generation is my generation 30 years before that. So, yeah. you know, my generation was very few Chinese around. It was mostly Greeks and kids of Jewish descent, Italians, some Lebanese, etc. And uh, when we got on universities, because 
everyone took the view that we were pushed. Now we look at not so much your generation, but you know, young Chinese kids today who get into university. Mm. And, you know, like they're all in the selective schools. They do really well at university. They get into the best, the hardest degrees to get into because their parents push them. And I've always wondered whether or not I'm um, talking to someone like you. Would you say that's a, a proper stereotype? I mean, and, and, it, and is it driven from the fact that, um, and I think it's driven from a good place, but you think it's driven from the fact that parents push their kids to do better than they have, to take advantage of the opportunities that a great country like Australia offers? Yeah, I think, I think there's a combination. You know, you mentioned like Jewish folks and some of the other cultures are pretty driven by education and entrepreneurship and things like that. And I, I think there must be some aspects of that that, you know, are sort of like longstanding, you know, cultural aspects that stay ingrained in, in any kind of group of people. But in terms of Australia and, you know, immigration into Australia, it definitely does feel like, you know, when I was younger, um, those stereotypes were probably true. Most of the immigrants were very recent immigrants. Um, a lot of it was like, you know, you need to work hard at school because, you know, I didn't have the opportunity that I'm giving you. And so you need to make the most of it and to de-risk that, you know, de-risk being successful, you know, just make sure that, you know, you get into uni and, and things go well in that sense. But I think what you are starting to see is like that culture sort of shifting over time. You know, if you think as people are more longstanding and developed in the country, for example, if you look at like in the US now, you know, Silicon Valley, entrepreneurs, I think from Asian and Indian backgrounds are a huge proportion of the, of the successful entrepreneurs are, are from backgrounds are like that. And probably because those groups are getting a little bit more established in, in, in the US, whereas there are probably other groups that maybe don't have that, you know, opportunity just yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of see it like, and I don't want to labor, but I sort of see it like gold rush. You know, Silicon Valley is a gold rush in a new format. Um, you know, when the gold rush was on in Australia, the, the immigrants came from everywhere to try and make a better life. And uh, Silicon Valley just represents that as another gold rush. Um, but just a different format. Formatting is different. A bit like what Airtasker does is um, it's a marketplace, but just, just different formatting, you know, like using technology. Yeah. So I, I, and I read somewhere that um, your dad used to pay you um, or encourage you by paying you to pluck out silver hairs or something like that when you're a kid. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So he used to pay me a couple of cents per hair that I'd pull out of his head. I don't know. It's kind of a, it feels like a very fruitless exercise. I don't even know how many hairs you have on the air, probably millions, but uh, I would just sit there and, and pluck hairs out of, out of his uh, head. And usually I'd get paid a couple of cents uh, per hair that I pulled out. But, but, you know, from time to time, I was able to make a bit of money out of it by negotiating with uh, him for higher rates. <laughs> That's a good way. It's a, it's sort of a shared event too, by the way, because I can imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine pulling hairs out of your head's not that, probably be, not painful, but it wouldn't be all that much fun. So you went to school, you went after um, the North Sydney school, you went to university, which university did you go to? Uh, I went to UNSW and so University of New South Wales. Yep. Um, and I did a, a degree which was uh, pretty unique at the time because I didn't really plan out what I wanted to do in uni. But I saw that there was this course, which was a Bachelor of Commerce, Marketing, Tourism and Hospitality Management. And um, I thought that just sounded cool. I was just like, oh, being hospitality, you know, hang out at cool hotels and serve drinks and, you know, that sort of thing. So I went and did that degree and thankfully it was a Bachelor of Commerce. That was the, the backbone. But the degree in hospitality management was really awesome. I, I did I did really well in the wine tasting um, <laughs> course that we had to do. So, like, well, to get a BCom at UNSW in the Australian School of Business is uh, pretty difficult for those who are listening. Um, I don't know, you must have been a 98% or something like that around that territory. 
Yeah, yeah, I did pretty well in the HSC. I, I actually pushed really hard yeah, during, you know, year 11, year 12 to do well. But actually, I think for a Bachelor of Commerce, it was around about a 96 UAI at okay. the time that you needed or, or um, ATAR. Actually, with the hospitality degree, they actually had another layer, which was like doing, you know, personal interpersonal skills tests and things like that. And so you could actually get in there with a, with a lower ATAR. Right. Okay. Well, because uh, I, I'm still have a um, an academic role out there in the Australian School of Business. I'm still a professor out there in that school. And uh, and funny, I, I haven't lectured there for a couple of years. But like um, last time I lectured there, I, I remember it was usually at night, and like half of them would fall asleep in my lecture. They they sit there, they dozing off, and I would ask them why. And most of them, the reason they told me is because they're, they're up the night before working at Woolworths packing shelves. You know, like a lot of them had part time jobs. Mm. So really driven young people um, do that degree, particularly in the master's degree. You sound like you've gone into your degree um, sort of with a little bit of a lifestyle sort of um, flavour towards it, thinking to yourself, hang on, I could be on the uh, P&O cruiser with Captain Stubing um, sort of uh, serving wine and uh, talking to all the guests. Is that something that was going through your head? Yeah, that, that's actually right. I, I, it's funny. I, I feel like in life I've generally gone through waves of, you know, being really conscientious and then, you know, having breaks and then being conscientious again and then taking breaks. So. During high school, in the early days, I was working really, really hard. I think in my sort of mid years, I didn't do so well. And then, you know, during year 11 and 12, I pushed myself really hard. At the end of that, I said to myself that during uni, I was going to enjoy university. Like this was just, you know, it was a pass bail sort of thing for me. And I wanted to you know, take a break and, and enjoy it. And so, you know, I passed all of my uh, courses and, and did okay. But, you know, I wasn't a rock star uh, university student. Uh, and then, you know, coming out into work, worked really hard and then taking breaks. And, you know, obviously with uh, doing what I'm doing now at Airtasker, that's something we're really, really pushing hard right now. And at some point in the future, it'd be great to be able to create some space and have a bit of a break. And that's interesting. And that's a good perspective because I think that um, most of our audience and people who are aspire to do what you're doing have a, a view on entrepreneurs like you that you are – endless in your energy, that you never stop, you push for your whole life, you know, you never have a break. And I know people think that about me, and it's just not the case. It's, it's interesting you're now, you know, you're putting out there that you go hard when the opportunity's there. And for me, that's what I do. When the opportunity's there, I go hard and I just take everything off the table. It doesn't matter what's on the table. I'm going to work my ass off to take everything off the table. But once everything's off the table, like um, if I can get it, I can easily be distracted in in relation to something or some of the thing that sort of um, takes my interest. It doesn't have to be business; it can be something else. I can go about that as something else in a business like manner. So what you're sort of saying that um, you know you go in, you're not drifting and drifting out, but you go hard when the time is right to go hard. But the other times you know when to take yourself a break. And I think it's really important. What do you think about that? Giving yourself a break. Yeah, I've read um, I read a, a book recently, Why We Sleep which is a book by Matt Walker about, um, you know, the science of sleep. And it was actually sort of like um, mind shaping for me, this book, because the way that this uh, professor of sleep um, talks about sleep, he talks about it in the active sense, that it's actually something that you need to do to recover your body. And that it's kind of crazy that, you know, entrepreneurs and students and, you know, people, and even society at large, the way it's structured, it sort of makes it aspirational to just keep going and going and going. And what he likens it to is like, you know, it's like running a marathon. Like there's no way you're going to get from, you know, travel a thousand kilometers. There's no way that the best way to do that is just to keep running forever. You need to take those active breaks. And 
it makes it really clear that, you know, your body needs to recover so that you can go hard again. You know, you can apply that same thing to your mind as well. You need to sleep and take a break. And it's actually a really smart thing to do to, you know, sometimes rather than, you know, writing emails at, at 2 a.m. in the morning is rather take a break, step back, figure out what's important. And then when you wake up at 9 a.m. in the morning, like a normal person or 8 a.m. in the morning, you can really do that uh, work uh, much more efficiently and well. And I think you got to, you know, you got to balance that. It doesn't mean that you can just, you know, sometimes you do have to answer that email at, at 1 a.m. in the morning, sometimes. But actually, as a general principle, it's smarter to think smarter, take breaks, and then do things uh, properly. And I think uh, Jeff Bezos is pretty famous for that. I think he sleeps like nine hours a night or something. But, you know, when he's awake and making decisions, he's making bloody good decisions. <laughs> as opposed to making them, you know, half-baked. I'm really glad we've raised this because I think it's an important point. We need to debunk, I think we need to debunk the myth. The myth is that um, Churchill would have, you know, three hours sleep a night and sleep an hour during the day, something like that. Einstein, you know, would only need four hours sleep. And I think that, uh, I don't know, if that's what's written about him. I don't know whether it's true or not. I, I thought it's going to be pretty hard to prove it one way or the other now. Um, and, and a lot of people look at uh, entrepreneurs like you and uh, they say, um, well, I've got to be like that and I've got to work to midnight every night. I can survive on four or five hours. I can get up at uh, five and I can go again. I can just keep doing it. Eventually you'll get burned out. I don't give a shit who you are. You will. You, I mean, I've, I've experienced it. I've actually, it has actually happened to me. It took me a long time to learn this stuff, by the way, like really long time to get my head around it because sometimes um, I overdo it. And what I tend to find is that when I'm overdoing it, I'm, I'm turning shit at work out anyway. Um, it's not all that good. It's not that effective. And it's good to see, uh, relatively speaking, a young guy, relative to me, like you, actually expressing it this way. And I think that other entrepreneurs need to get their head around this. You've got to do it. You might, As you say, you might be times you get to stay up to midnight, you've got to stay at one or two because you're on a roll. You've got, to, you've got to keep going. But don't make that part of your regime that I do go to bed at one o'clock every morning every night and that when I am and then I get up again at 6 a.m. because that's you're going to burn yourself out. And not only do we need to have enough sleep during the day, but we actually need to take a break every year or every six months. Everybody's different, but just appreciate what it is you need to do and how you break and where you break and what is your break. When I take a break, I actually come back so much better, only like three or four days, but I come back so energized. Um, it's crazy. I've gone through a process, Tim, where I've actually run myself into the ground and I've had um, an immune, uh, a major immune response where my whole body's just seized up. And, uh, you know, and then I'm out, out for fucking two weeks. Um, that, so I think that's, that's a really important point. Definitely. Yeah, I've kind of noticed there's, there's almost like a, a few different cycles there. I think it's almost like you need to be taking like daily breaks, you know, like sleeping well. Um, generally, you need to take those, you know, as you mentioned, those three-day weekends from time to time. And those can be really powerful, um, you know, every kind of, um, you know, eight weeks or every quarter or something. Um, but then for me, I also feel like having two weeks, like a block where you actually get your head out of work and you actually try and think about something else. And, you know, sometimes it's related to work. I won't lie. Like it's, it's always around. Um, but, you know, sometimes taking that two weeks out, like for me, I do that over Christmas usually. And when you come back, you are just, you know, you're, you're moving at the next level. And so, yeah, I feel like there's always like breaks that need to be taken at all those different sort of cycles, daily, quarterly, and probably yearly too. Um, but everybody's different. Yeah, but, the, but they've got to work out their own routine and their own rhythm. And I think it's really important. Just don't think that people like you or me or and, and or others are, you know, working 20, uh, like 20 hours of every day or 18 hours of every day 
every day of the week, every week of the year for years. It just doesn't happen. After your university, where'd you first uh, land a job? Uh, so I was actually during university working at a really small boutique hotel in the eastern suburbs called the Altamont uh, Hotel. It was, oh, yeah, um, I know that one. Yeah, it was owned uh, by a, a man named Paul Fishman, uh, who at the time was uh, 27 years old, a really young entrepreneur. And I, I was like sort of 20 at the time, I think. And I, I didn't know this, but but Paul, you know, he went on whilst I was working there to buy the hotel next door. And then he would bought the hotel next door to that. Then he, he owned eight hotels, a group called Eight Hotels or something, didn't he? That's right. And now yeah. I think he's got something like 40 hotels across different countries and things like that. And and I was so fortunate to have been there on the ground level when he had like literally just scraped enough money together to, to buy this first hotel. Um, so I was working there and then, um, yeah, some really exciting uh, people used to come through the door, um, like little Australian celebrities and things like yeah. that. So it was, it was a really cool place to work um, yeah. during uni. Yeah, that's, that's cool. So, and then, and you learn from um, Fishman um, sort of the art of uh, taking risk, I guess. Yeah, I learned a lot from Paul, but also I learned how to work 12 hours uh, continuously at the hotel, doing basically everything from the housekeeping to putting out breakfast to taking bookings and, and doing guest showing. So it was really good, like just do whatever it takes sort of uh, role. Whilst I was there, a job opportunity came up on the UNSW Jobs Board. And basically it said that you get the opportunity to work with Steve Waugh, um, all these like uh, Greg Norman and all of these like sports people. I thought that sounded pretty cool. And so I applied for this, for this internship, it was unpaid internship. Uh, and it turned out it was actually with Macquarie Bank because at the time Macquarie was working closely with Greg Norman to build our golf course real estate developments. And working with Steve Ward to build uh, Indian uh, cricket real estate place. And so I applied for that and I, I got that internship and then that turned into my first job out of out of uni, working in real estate investment banking at Mavoric. And uh, why don't you tell us what it's like to work in the um, millionaire's factory at Macquarie Bank? I mean, especially as a young intern, I'm not getting paid. It was definitely, you know, they weren't really prescribed to the get a bunch of sleep um, kind of yeah. um, motto. It was a different uh, working style there. And I think I, I feel so fortunate to have been able to work there during, you know, what turned out to be a massive uh, property uh, boom. So I guess when you talk about the Millionaire's Factory, it was definitely did feel like that at the time. The, the parties were definitely pretty awesome. You know, some of the people that I was working with, you know, were just on, a, were on an awesome run. But the opportunity was amazing. The skills that you learn in a place like that, I think are really powerful. Like in terms of things like quant and analytics and things like that. Yeah, I look back at a culture like that. And although, you know, there's lots to criticize about a culture that works people, you know, on weekends till 2am and things like that. It is a real culture. You know, they've really got a way of doing things and it's a high performance way of doing things. And I have a lot of respect uh, for that. Um, and I think there's lots to be learned from that when you're building out your own organization. Maybe you don't want to do the 2 a.m. Uh, on weekends part of it. But, you know, being able to inspire people and motivate them to work at that level is is a pretty uh, powerful thing. It's probably interesting too. A lot of times it's not because you have to work to 2 a.m. It's because everyone else is working at 2 a.m. And you look around you, the team's all just putting in. I mean, I was in partnership with Macquarie Bank for a long time. And it's a very interesting culture. It's It's... It sounds like you're, they enslave you to some extent, but they don't. It's actually, from my experience anyway, everybody actually wants to do what they do. You probably can't do it forever. For sure. 
but you do what you want to do. And even if you're not getting paid, you do it because you want to be part of that outcome. You want to be part of that, as you said, high performance success and success that comes from high performance. That's an important thing to learn if you want to become a good entrepreneur and also learning how to, when you become an entrepreneur and you have people working in your own shop, like your shop, um, how do I take a little bit of that and uh, try and parlay that into my own business and have my people want to work at high performance levels and do it in a way that I don't force them but they're actually wanting to do it themselves for their own CV. Definitely. It, it, it feels like a team sport, you know, when you're working in a place like that. And yeah. um, that's something that, you know, is is um, something that I want to build at, at Airtash as well. Like make people feel part of something and give that recognition and that reward when people smash it out of the park. And I think that's actually more valuable than the money. You know, I think... Um, at a place like Macquarie, obviously the money was is a perk for for everyone, but I don't really think that that was you know directly what people wanted. Like people, you know, they don't really love buying um, lots of stuff. It's actually the fact that when you're winning, it's a bit of a score, and you know you feel like you're part of that high performance team that's winning. That's a really cool feeling. And you know, like that's a big deal. So and post Macquarie, uh, so actually after Macquarie, I um. I joined a, a fashion modeling agency called um, Chic Management. So it was interesting. I guess, um, again, the allure of like celebrities and, and stuff like that. I was really into, I'm really into Formula One and um, I wanted to learn how to like manage talent and, and help um, drivers um, become successful. So um, I thought, you know, I'm going to go try and be like Ari Gold from Entourage, go and work at a talent rep agency. And so... I um I applied to work at a, a place called Chic Management. Ursula Hufnagel is is the co-founder and uh, you know a former model, um and she uh, gave me an opportunity to work with her, uh, which was um, amazing. Again, I did that for free uh, to start out. When I worked uh, there, you know she looked after people like Miranda Kerr and a bunch of other um, Australian supermodels and things. That led me, I guess, to to working in in entrepreneurship because the the co-founder of the agency, the other half of the agency, was a man named Peter O'Connell. Uh, who is one of the founding directors of Optus. And I, I just met him randomly um, at, a, at a work event uh, whilst I was working at Cheek. And he was like, oh, I've never had like an investment banking analyst working in my modeling agency before. And, you know, I'm going to go do some entrepreneurial stuff. Do you want to come and help me? So really fortunate to be taken under his wing and given an opportunity to work on, on a startup. And, you know, the first big one that we worked on was a, was a company called um, Amazim which is like a mobile virtual network uh, operator. We started that out the back of the modeling agency. And yeah, again, just um, really fortunate to have gone on a journey where I got to learn from, you know, an awesome founder like Peter and, and the other founders of Amazing. Pete's a great guy. He was the CEO at CPA to consolidate press holdings for Kerry Packer for many years or for the Packer family. I knew him yeah. from those days. I've known him for a long time. He's. I remember when he first started Amazing and I thought, oh my God, you're going to put up a a competitor to everyone else out there. And I don't remember how long ago, it was maybe 10 years ago or so, but uh, maybe even longer. But he's such a goer and he's very smart and he's incredibly uh, connected. I was amazed at how he was able to raise money. As I, as I recall, he raised money out of Europe. I mean, there were some big European investors in Mason originally. Did you learn anything about raising money? Because obviously Airtask has had to raise money. Did you, what did you learn in terms of pitch, connect, connections, raising money? Oh, so I, I was, again, like uh, being Pete's sidekick in those early days, I got to go there. Yeah, I basically designed all the pitch decks and had to do all the, the work behind uh, the pitch. So that was like an awesome uh, experience. 
and I think it was, it was really hard to raise that money. We had to go and, you know, pitch to a lot of people across the world to, to be able to bring that uh, financing in. Um, one thing that Pete did teach me along that journey was just really thinking about things like end to end, like every little detail. I remember we went and pitched a, a group of folks at a hotel, you know, we booked out a hotel meeting room and, and, and to, to do the pitch and there was no screen. Um, that was sort of built into the room. And so we couldn't actually put up the pitch deck and we ended up having to just do it off a laptop. And, you know, Pete kind of scolded me after the meeting, going like, where was the overhead, like, where was the projector? Like, why didn't you bring a projector to the meeting? I was like, oh, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought that you need to bring like a, a, a large screen projector to a meeting at a hotel. He's like, well, like, how are you going to present it to them if you don't, if you don't have that? And I think the lesson there was like, you need to be thinking about all of those details end to end and just imagine you know, how the meeting's going to go and, and make sure you're covering off um, all of those details and no matter how small they are. So yeah, I learned a, I learned a lot from Pete uh, throughout, you know, raising that that capital. Um, and, and that did help us for Adasco. Pete is an incredibly uh, convincing character. He's a very good presenter. Like, uh, obviously he's got to know his stuff, but he's very good in front of people. Uh, you Obviously you would agree, but I'm just getting that sense from you now too, that you're quite competent at uh, presenting discussion. You know, when to time your sentences when to stop uh you know and then and like a lot of people think oh the pitch is the pitch it's not just the pitch it's about the tone the timing and you've got to sort of read into the situation all the time it's also about all those various points that you raised before about making sure you've got overhead projector if you're in a hotel and etc all the the little bits all the the weeds they're all going to be there if you reflect on peter and i'm sure you know I haven't seen him for a while, but I, I was good friends with him many years ago. What would you say that you learned from him in terms of his ability to uh, pitch to his audience in terms of raising money? Well, I think Pete is an incredible storyteller. And I've been, you know, learning about this um, over over the years and, and trying to improve this as well, which is to sort of step back and, and start back with the problem, anchor back to something that, you know, your audience and yourself both emphasize with. And then sort of go on that journey towards getting towards the solution. I think the one thing that can be quite, you know, this, this applies in, in almost all forms of communication. It can be very jarring when somebody just comes into a room and throws a solution into the room and says, here it is, I've got the answers. Usually that doesn't resonate with, with people because they haven't been on the journey that you've been on. Um, so better is to sort of take a step back, anchor back to something that both you and the audience sort of empathize with and can can understand and then sort of like step by step take them towards the solution uh, that you're proposing so in the case of you know a mason um, they might have been something like you know how it's really annoying that your phone bill you get bill shock and you know when you open up that bill and it's a one thousand dollar phone bill and that really hurts you know people go yes it's like well we're developing a solution to try and you know remove that from the world and then this is what a mason is so I think, yeah, Pete does that incredibly well. He probably takes it to the next level where he can do it in poetry and soliloquies and haikus and things like that as well. He's a yep. brilliant sort of um, uh, literature, you know, expert. But uh, I think, you know, he always had that ability to be able to empathize with problems that the other, you know, that the audience is going to resonate with. He knows how to control the room. He's, he's nearly like a... Um uh, like someone in the old bard or, or a poet or something like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he controlled the whole room and he plays every character and he's very good. I was surprised when he raised all the money, but good on him. Well done. And uh, brilliant that you got an opportunity to be with these sorts of people like Peter O'Connell. Um, 
What happened after a Mason? One of my uni mates, Jono, who was a, a telco engineer that I brought into Amasim, he and I were the first uh, one and two employees uh, of Amasim. Once the company had launched, we'd raised the money. We'd gone through this mad rush of hiring about 200 people, building an office, scaling the marketing, et cetera. About six months into it, you know, we were already starting to get itchy feet around like, what's next? <laughs> uh, Jono and I used to meet up in the coffee room every morning and just talk about uh, different ideas. We had a couple of different ideas. One of them was with a terrible one that I'm very glad that we didn't go through with, but it was like a QR uh, code marketing uh, company, which is a terrible idea. But then um, I was um, living in the city at the time with a bunch of other guys um, in an apartment in Elizabeth Street. And uh, I asked one of my friends to help me move apartments. You know, the reason why I asked him to come and help me move is because he's got this truck that he uses to do deliveries. He runs a, a business making uh, chicken nuggets, frozen chicken nuggets, which he, you know, sells wholesale. So we put everything in the back of his truck and he helped me move apartments. And, and that just got us thinking is why do we ask our friends and family to do all these kinds of jobs when there's so many people out there looking for a way to be able to earn money? Like it's just crazy. And, and you're asking someone to come and help you move who's clearly very busy, has better things to do. And yet that's a better opportunity or an easier way to get things done than like going and finding someone who actually wants to do that job. And we just saw that this was so broken and that, you know, if we could just connect these two groups up uh, in a trusted way, we'd be able to create a, a whole bunch of opportunity. And so that was the genesis uh, for, for Airtasker. You actually had a real need yourself and you experienced the need and you thought you could come up with a solution. That brings us to Airtasker. We're going to go to the break. But when we come back from the break, I actually want to ask you, I mean, it's okay to have a good idea, a great idea, but it's not just about that. It's about the execution. It's about raising capital, patient capital at that and it's about deploying. What were your trials and tribulations and you know how did you conquer those things? Right through to the listing, the IPO. So let's go to the break and we'll come straight back. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So back from the break, I'm here with Tim Fung and uh, Tim is the uh, 
one of the founders of Airtasker. Um, we've sort of travelled from early days up to Airtasker being a great idea. What I want to find out is, you know, you have a great idea, what's the first thing you do? Yeah, it's really interesting. We, we sort of had that genesis, that spark of the idea in probably about May of 2011. And we didn't react to it too quickly. Uh, we actually just started, you know, just talking about it. You know, we were still in our 20s at the time. So we'd go out and have beers with our friends and, and just talk about stuff. Uh, I, uh, I remember pitching it to two people. One person was a, was a business consultant uh, that I knew who went on to, to do great things at, at Google and a bunch of other uh, places. And he asked a few of his friends at Bain uh, whether they would use a service like Airtasker. They were like, hell yeah. So that was kind of like ticking the box on number one. The second person I pitched it to was the person that I ended up moving in with. You know, after the apartment move, I, I moved in with another roommate. He worked in superannuation. And so he was like quite risk averse, I would say. Like generally, he's approached things very cynical and he'd be like, that's a crap idea. And like that was the default uh, response to stuff. And this was probably the first idea that I pitched to him where he didn't sort of, you know, completely smash me. He was actually like, it's not that bad. And I was like, wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a positive signal. Um, yeah, after pitching it to those uh, few people, I guess that, that got me interested in actually, you know, exploring uh, this idea. And the first thing that I did is I just had a sketch pad out and I just started like wireframing up, you know, a vision uh, for what we, we wanted to build, coming up with a brand name and, and I guess just going about and doing it you know, figuring out, laying the, the path as, as we went. And I think that is probably one aspect that is, you know, of, of typical founders, which is that the, if you think about it too much and you try to plan it out too much, most of the time you convince yourself it's a crap idea and, you know, or it's not worth it. The risks are worth it. The probability is not worth it. And you don't go and do anything about it. So jumping off the cliff, if you will, and then, you know, forcing yourself into a position where you got to figure it out. Uh, along the way was sort of the way that we did it. And, and I think if I had sat down and, and planned out what the next 10 years were going to look like <laughs> since then, um, you know, it probably wouldn't have started in the first place. Was Airtasker the name you first came up with? No, we had, we had tons of other uh, really, really terrible uh, names uh, along the way before we got to Airtasker. How did you get that name? It's actually um, related to, well, sorry, maybe I just start back from where our head was at. One of the things that we wanted to really differentiate with Airtasker is that we wanted to make tasking on our platform something aspirational. Uh, we felt it was really important that you treat people in a way in which they're actually inspired to do the work. And we believe that every single person has skills. And so we kind of imagined Airtaskers or, or people doing work on the platform as people who were sort of like bounding across the city, you know, jumping from building to building, helping people out along the way. There's actually a character from Marvel, like a Marvel comic called the Airwalker. Um, he's like this really tough looking um, character who has like flaming shoes and jumping around and flying around and things like that. And we're like, yes, we want to be like that. But then like we needed Task to be the name. So we just changed Airwalker and took out Walk and replaced it with Task. And that's how we ended up with Airtasker. How cool. But that's pretty cool though. It's a good story. And it's, it's sort of quite an interesting, well, the fact is there is a story with it and there's logic there too. So it's quite an interesting way of arriving at the name. So you've got the name and then you've got your, you've got your purpose, you know, the reason what you want people to feel inspired. And, uh, but what's the next thing? Like someone's got to build the, the platform, someone's got to do the technology. Who'd you turn to? How'd you do that? Well, one of the things about building out a marketplace is uh, that it's not just building a website or like, you know, just building some small application and then, you know, trying to sell widgets along the way. 
when you build a marketplace, it's actually more akin to building out like infrastructure. It's almost similar to building out a telco or a road network or something like that, because it literally has no value on day one, unless you build up the connections in your marketplace and you build up that liquidity. It's not something that you can kind of go into in a, in a half-baked kind of way. So the first thing that John and I did is we quit our jobs at Amazon. So we let Pete and uh, the other founders who were Mason know that we were we were going to uh, quit and and go do something else. And I literally do remember a day that we went down to Aussie Square, Australia Square, and we sat there having a beer. We're like, are we going to do this? And then we said, yes, we're going to do this. And, you know, we did our fist bump and said, like, this is the commitment. Jono was a, an engineer and a pretty talented product uh, guy. So um, he started uh, writing up all the specs, but he's not a developer. So we had to go and, and find a, a group of uh, people to help us build uh, the software. We had worked with a lot of different agencies when we had, were building the Amazon uh, platform, but we knew that that wasn't going to be a fit for building out a startup. And so we met a, a person called Michael Chindrick, uh, who runs Sentia, which sounds like a, a big agency, but it was actually like this at the time, this small group of, you know, smelly people who were kind of sitting in, a, in an office in above George Street uh, near, near Town Hall Station in this like really um, small office and we walked in, but they had this really cool fish tank and they had like Street Fighter on the arcade machine and like a racing car chair and stuff. We're just like, this is awesome. <laughs> these, are the, these are the kinds of people we want to work with. So we, we sort of did a quick assessment with them, but we worked with them in a different way, which is that we pretty much engaged them as like our team and we would go sit in their office next to the Street Fighter machine and, and work with them side by side, literally building it out pixel by pixel. That turned out to be a, a great partnership. So... Um, that continued on for quite a number of years before we really uh, invested into building out Airtasker's um, software engineering culture. How did you pay them though? Or where did the money come from? Uh, John and I put in a bunch of our own uh, money to be able to to get the thing started. Thankfully, Pete and a couple of the Amazing founders, although they were pretty miffed that we had you know quit our jobs <laughs> uh, at at Amazing, they um, they put in a little bit of money as well, which was you know great signalling uh, for us. And then we actually gave uh, Michael, the, the founder of Sentia, a bunch of equity, you know, sweetened the deal. And um, yeah, I think he's pretty happy with, with how that went in the end. Where is that now? Because, you know, like a lot of people I know um, who come up with these great ideas and they actually can do some of the work. They can get it at a certain stage, but they do need to then go and find specialists to, you know, like in your case, um, build the, the technology. But they don't like to give equity away, and they. But at the same time, they can't afford to pay. They they struggle with how they're going to go forward, and what they tend to do is go and find someone who can do it cheaper, and they just drip feed it. Time to market is important. Um, you could have actually said, "Listen, why don't we slow the pace down? And we'll pay you what we can afford." Was there a, a point at which you said, "No, hang on, we need to get to the market quickly." Um, what we're better off doing is giving doing an equity deal and paying them something. I mean, did you go through that process getting to market fast? We always wanted to build something big and have impact, like genuinely subscribe to that philosophy of, you know, small slice of a bigger pie. And I think that is something yep. also that, you know, Pete really instilled in me as well, which is like, bring other people on the journey. Like it's going to be so much better if you're working as a group and you're all anchored towards wanting the same thing. And so, you know, giving away equity was something that, you know, it didn't really phase me uh, too much at all. I actually wanted to bring people on that journey and found it was a, was a really a great thing to be able to do. And I think also like one reason why a lot of entrepreneurs want to like hold on to a lot of equity is to, to hold on to control, you know, to be able to still have influence over the company. And I think that's valid. 
Um, but I think you can learn, you can earn that influence in different ways. You know, a lot of these Silicon Valley companies have these sort of um, ownership structures where it's like the founders have a thousand to one, you know, voting rights over, over ordinary shareholders and things like that. And we don't have that at Airtasker. We always had ordinary shares where my vote was just as important as, as somebody else's. That holds you to a high level of account in terms of actually making decisions that, you know, inspire the trust of other people, that, that make other people say, yeah, I want to trust this person as the CEO and the, and the founder of the, the company because they're making decisions which are good for all of us. You're there um, making those calls, not because you got a thousand times their votes and they got no choice, but you're there making those decisions because they want you there because they have, they have confidence in your capacity. And I think that's a really important point. You raised, like, let's say, did you raise like a million, half dollars, two million bucks to kick it off? I mean, like with Pete and everybody? Yeah, so we raised about 250K um, just to get it started, of which Jono and I put in a big chunk of that 250K. And that was literally just to say, hey, we're serious about this. We've actually built the platform. We are out in market and this is happening. But we knew that as soon as we got out to market that we needed to raise more money. And um, I got some advice from another one of, uh, another actual ex-packer, uh, executive ago, a uh, man named Gary Sladden, who said to me, you know, when you're drilling for oil, he's like, the best time to raise money is before you actually start drilling. And once you start drilling, then then the pressure's really on. People either get a number and it's sort of like hit or miss. So he said, um, as soon as you build this platform, you should go out and, and raise the next round. So we did that and we raised about a million and a half dollars. Uh, and that was largely off the back of the trust that we built uh, John and I, in being part of the Amazim journey, like people had seen that we could execute on something before. For about five seconds there, I thought that we were flush. I was like, this is awesome, million and a half dollars. I've never seen this much money in a bank account, which I control before. I'm, you know, we're, we're on top of the world. But as soon as, you know, you start hiring people and you start seeing the costs add up, it quickly becomes incredibly daunting. And I remember in probably month three or four, once we'd hired a team, started, you know, spending a little bit of money on advertising and PR and things like that. We had a burn rate of like 120 grand or something in like month three or four. A month? A month. And when you see yeah. that next to $1.5 million, which is kind of going down very, very rapidly, things start to get very, very real. And I would say it was mostly a sense of fear and anxiety as opposed to a sense of Oh, well, you go oh, from the penthouse to the shithouse really quickly. That's right. <laughs> I mean, like you got the million and a half, you're feeling, how good is this? Like, that's a lot of lot of dough and we can do everything we need to do. And all of a sudden, you know, eight months later, you think, shit, it's only going to last another four months. I'm in that's trouble right. here. And Kerry Pagan said to me, he said, a bit, a bit like um, what Gary Sladden said to you, always raise the money when you don't need it. He said, you can rest assured the day you need the money, you won't be able to raise it. Mm. And there's a thing, investors can smell if you need something. And uh, they either ping you on the the value of what it is you're raising against. In other words, they discount you, or alternatively, they just walk away altogether. And um, you're right; you're better off to raise a dough. And when you've got something nice and shiny, because it can be pretty doing, but you've got to make sure you raise enough. So, what did you do? It's like you got a you got a run rate of maybe four more months. Now, was that technological scale, or was it to market to build scale? It was really interesting as a marketplace company. The product that we're building is a combination of two things. It's one, building out the tech stack, you know, the software that powers the market, but it's also about building out liquidity in the marketplace, the buyers and the sellers, or in our case, the yeah. customers and the, and the service providers. We, uh, we had to do both of those uh, different things. And the way that we 
um, sort of uh, pitched the outcomes that we were aiming for was in terms of like marketplace traction. You know, we said, this is how many users we want to get to. This is how many transactions we think we can get to. But we were pretty clear that when you're building a marketplace, it's likely that you're going to be investing for some time to come. You know, this isn't the last round of funding that we're going to be doing. We're going to, you know, be on that, that trail for a while. And so that pretty much was the next sort of 18 months. Every 12 to 18 months, we'd have to be out to market raising new money and showing the progress that we were making. And along that first sort of seven or eight years, uh, even though revenues were going up, burn rates were definitely going up as well. So, you know, the states were kind of building up over time. In the early days, we were burning maybe 100K a month. Seven or eight years in, we were burning $2 million a month. So it was pretty, <laughs> the states were increasing over time and um, it was pretty heavy. One of the things I know about you guys is the seven group invested in you. Was that a transaction to try and like some financial engineering to buy cheaper at seven and get advertising on Channel 7? Because I do remember seeing a lot of Airtask ads on Channel 7 for many, many years. I still see them today, but just assumed that you'd done a sort of a, a marketing deal for them, not only in terms of spending money with them, but also to bring them on as a shareholder. That's right. So. What we um, sort of realized is as much as, you know, once we had sort of broken that chicken and egg problem and had the taskers and the customers sort of, you know, interacting with the marketplace, we, we, we thought about what does it take to scale uh, the company? And so when uh, Seven uh, pitched us to come on board as an investor, they'd actually set up a, a Seven Ventures uh, group. Um, and so uh, they came knocking on our door and the opportunity there was to partner with them. And to bring them on as a shareholder, where they would invest in in the form of cash, of course, but also in terms of media contra. That was actually a really fruitful partnership for us because we were looking at, you know, ways to be able to scale marketing anyway. So we were like, well, we're going to spend our money on, on marketing. But, you know, of course, what it did is it made us think, you know, we've got to spend the money with Seven as opposed to spending it with Google or Facebook or, or um, some other uh, group. And that worked out really well for us because as you build a marketplace, you're trying to build out trust in that marketplace. You need people to know that you're here to stay. You're not a fly-by-nighter. And I think TV was really suitable for that. And then second of all is you want to try and become like a household name so that, you know, when somebody is, you know, has a leaking tap, they're just straight away, they're thinking Airtasker. Uh, when they have to move houses, they're straight away, they're thinking about Airtasker. That's really what the partnership with Seven allowed us to do was to get you know, into the mainstream of Australia uh, to be able to also put ourselves contextually. You know, we advertised a lot during like Better Homes and Gardens and great part of our journey. And it was a huge step change, frankly, in the growth of the marketplace. Those big media companies like Seven, like Channel 9, they were watching what was going on around the rest of the world. And the audience should take this on board because this applies to every media company. They were watching what was going on around the world and there was this concept of convergence that is converging media platforms with investment. So they give you media coupons and they give you cash. Um, cash, I guess, to develop your business and the media coupons to build your brand. And I, I don't know, look, everyone keeps talking about digital marketing. Digital marketing is extremely powerful, don't get me wrong, particularly today, extremely powerful. But I still believe, even though the audiences have shrunk, the mainstream television stations are very good for building a brand. And as you said, you said a really good point, household name. Households still watch television. For sure. They still watch the news. They still watch Better Homes and Gardens. They still watch uh, whatever shows Channel 7 has and Channel 9 has. They still watch these shows. And uh, I've always found that to be very good to launch a brand and very good to um, implant a brand or a brand name into someone's head. Oh, for sure. I think, uh, you know, we saw something like 
35% week on week growth, you know, we launched with and we were already at a, at a, you know, sizable scale, even before we, um, we went and did that. So it's definitely powerful. And, and I agree with you in relation to, you know, digital channels like, um, you know, YouTube and Google and Facebook versus, you know, free to air channels like nine and seven and things like that. If you go and speak to the folks at seven and nine, 20 years ago, they were probably over hyping it just like how YouTube and things are over hyping it now. And I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you need to be able to make that choice about, you know, what's overhyping versus what's actually real. And the answer is somewhere in between. And then you IPO'd this year, um, 2021. In other words, you, you listed your business. What were the thoughts going through the mind around whether you should or you shouldn't do it, like in terms of timing or, or doing it at all? Back in 2019, the, you know, the journey to the IPO was a, was a few years. In 2019, we were burning $2 million a month and we made a decision, hey, we need to become a sustainable company that can pay its own, that can pay its own way. In a very short period of time, because of the, the high leverage in our model, we were able to get profitable in seven months. So we got profitable at the beginning of 2020. Then the pandemic hit. That was obviously disruptive, but actually caused a, a net acceleration uh, in our business. And so by the end of 2020, we were like, hey, we want to move faster. We want to be able to like scale in the US and the UK. And, you know, we thought about like, how are we going to be able to raise the money to be able to do that? Because it is an upfront capital raising exercise to be able to go and launch new countries, et cetera. Um, and so we thought, hey, if we do all this work upfront, become a public company, we're going to have much more agile access to capital as a listed uh, company. We also found that it was awesome to give our taskers and our employees an opportunity to own a piece of Airtasker, you know, to really own shares that they could sell and, and make money from. And so... And that was the other influence on, on going public. So we did that in, in March of, of this year. And uh, we've already um, you know, leveraged that by, by raising a round of capital uh, a couple of months ago. And it was quite amazing. We were able to raise about $20 million to acquire a company uh, in the US. And that took me about a week to, to be able to raise that sort of money. Whereas, you know, in terms of private capital, uh, that would probably take you months. If I was to take you know, there's a whole lot of good stuff to take out of this, but I would take one thing out of this. Develop the ability and the skill of being able to take people on your journey, whether it's the uh, consumers or whether it's the uh, suppliers in your case or the people who come to your marketplace, the people who actually provide skills or whether it's your shareholders, whether it's your staff, whoever it is. Develop the skill and the conviction of being able to take people on the journey with you. That's what I get out of this. That's incredibly powerful. And, uh, you know, I might be able to giving advice to everybody else. So sometimes I forget these things myself about myself, about things I should be doing or remember to do. So I really, I appreciate this opportunity to hear this from you. I mean, I, I, by the way, I've been asked lots of questions. Have you got a question for me? I do have a question uh, for you. So um, one of the things about being an entrepreneur or starting your own business is you obviously have to have enough conviction in uh, what you're doing to, to go out and give it a crack. At the same time, it's always good to listen to people and gather advice and be open to other people's feedback and thoughts and stuff. Sometimes those two things can be like contradictory. How do you get a sense of when's the right time to be conviction? I'm going to go with what I believe uh, versus I'm going to listen and, and maybe take on other people's advice. It's a very good question, actually. This is going to sound a bit weird, but I once consulted um, an astrologist many, 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 many years ago, like maybe seven, eight years, 10 years ago. I happened to be in Ireland at the time and she was a, a very famous, or she's a, still a very famous astrologist in Ireland. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to give her, pay her the 400 euros and she did this astrological chart for me. 
And one of the things she said to me was, you've got to be careful. You have a, you have a skill base in analytics. You know, you're an analytical person. Therefore, you want to listen to what everybody's got to say and you want to do your research. But she said, your astrological star sign says to you, always trust your gut irrespective of the analytical research. And it's funny, I've always made the best decisions when I've gone on my gut reaction, what I feel inside my gut. The way I operate is that um, I do take in everybody's view. I, I listen to everybody's view, but I always ultimately make my call. I trust my own gut instinct at the end of the day. And I think that's because I'm 65 years of age and probably it's not a gut instinct. It's probably some sort of analysis going on in my brain from based on what I've seen over 40 odd years. And based on all the various people I've spoken to over all those years, uh, my brain's probably arriving out of some sort of conclusion. So I do listen to everybody. I do take in what everybody's got to say. Um, I generally speaking won't sit down and just accept what someone says in relation to what they're doing. I will want to test that. But ultimately I make the call and I'm prepared to take the responsibility. I have experienced conflict and when I have overthought it and overanalyzed it, I've made mistakes. Yeah, I think um, having conviction as an entrepreneur and a founder, it's actually easy to swing back the other way and start listening to other people uh, too much. And yeah, I've definitely found that to be a challenge of like, how do I balance that? So sometimes just having making the decision and having the conviction is, is powerful. Yeah, totally. And uh, if you're an entrepreneur, stick to conviction. Listen, everybody, but stick to conviction. Awesome. Tim Fong, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.